0: Sometimes it's hard, it's hard to stay cool 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 Alright, well welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, if you're newer to Sedaris or um, you just want to know more what we're about as a church or you're new to Christianity and you want to get the foundations, get back up to speed, or maybe coming back to Christianity after a long time away, uh, we have people like all in all of those categories here at Cedars. The gospel class is sort of a great first step for that. Um, if you miss week one, we still have about five spots open uh, in our classroom, which is just up these stairs to the right. And um, you know, throw that slide back up for me, Toph. Uh, we've got these 14 principles uh, because I heard Jeff Bezos had 14 principles for leadership. So we have 14 principles that we came up with. I'm in a real struggle with Jeff Bezos. He doesn't know who I am. That's my struggle. So we're going to go after him. Uh, no, we love Jeff, and, uh, but I came up with my own 14 uh, leaders' uh, gospel principles. So we'll talk about in the, in the gospel class how you get from the, go- the historical news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the way to living as a community that's uh, governed by these principles, okay? So these are our 14 uh, principles. If, if you like that sort of stuff, if you like Jeff Bezos, you'll love this class, it's going to be great. I'm going to go after him in my sermon, too, one more time here, so stay tuned. Now, we, we have lots of Amazon employees that work at Sedaris. That's how I know about the 14 principles, and these are ours. So, here we go. I want to start today by telling you—you you hear that? That's, I know, it feels good. <laughs> I don't think there's anything I love more than the sound of rain. Me and my son were coming home last night when it was just deluging and we just sat in our car and we listened to worship music and I unbuckled him from his seat and he was climbing all over and we were just listening to the rain. When you listen to the rain, you should be reminded of God's grace. He brings the rain on all peoples that they might have crops that grow and eat food. God is a God of grace. So let's actually, let's just pause. Let's just soak this in right now. Let's just pray to God and ask him to be here, okay? Just listen to the rain for a second. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place to fill our hearts with the fruit of the gospel, God, that we might become your people in the world, your representatives, that we might bring your name and your blessings upon the people of this city and this nation and to the ends of the earth, God. May we be people who are filled with your spirit, who are pursuing you, who are putting Christ at the center of everything that we do, God. Help today, move us toward that end. Strip from us any distraction, any lies that we might be telling ourselves in our head about who you are and what you have for us in this world. Help us to know what's true and right and good and from you, God. Help us to feel your directive spirit in our lives each and every day. Be with me as I bring the word. Anything that is not from you, that comes from my mouth, may it go in one ear and out the other. If it is from you, may it stir in the hearts of these people and in my heart that I might know you more and serve you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, honestly, sometimes I just want to stand here and just just sit and just pray. But the rain reminded me to do that. I'm going to tell two stories today, one here and one in a bit. They're both stories that happened when I went to Fremont Brewing and I was sitting there and I, two people came up and started to talk to me. Uh, I was sitting there for a bit by myself, I was waiting, I was meeting a friend of mine and so I was just sitting by myself and the first gentleman came up, his name was Simon and, and Simon began to talk to me. Uh, he saw me sitting by myself, and I saw him off in the distance. And, you know, I'm a pastor, so I sit by myself all the time. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk to me. And so I, I was very comfortable, but, you know, you could tell Simon was worried about me. And he was kind of walking around. He was waiting for somebody, but he came and he sat down and I said, anybody sitting here? He engaged me and began to talk to me. He began to ask me questions about my life and where I'm from and what I'm doing in the city. Well, he didn't actually ask me that question because I never got to tell him. Uh, that I was a pastor that's why he stayed and talked to me (laughs) but Simon had a peculiar accent I couldn't quite tell is he from England Australia turns out he's from South Africa and he spent time in lots of places and I was just so blown away it was so peculiar does anybody know I'm going after Jeff Bezos right now one of the slogans of Amazon is be peculiar we're gonna talk about how Christians are the most peculiar peoples of the world, Amazonian's a close second. This guy was being so peculiar that he would come up to me and and, and ask, can I sit down, can I talk to you? And honestly, in the moment, I thought, this guy must be a Christian. Who else does this? I do it, (laughs) because I'm peculiar. But I was like, this guy must be a Christian. Maybe he's engaging me. Now, one of our principles here is everyone should be engaged, meaning every single person deserves to be known, to have their story heard, and this guy was living out one of our principles, engage each one, and he saw me alone, I don't know what story he, he, he thought, what a poor guy sitting by himself drinking a beer, I'm going to engage this one person, and I thought, how peculiar and how beautiful that was so I have no idea we didn't get to this point my friend showed up Then his friend showed up and so we didn't get to kinda see where the conversation would lead but I thought how peculiar peculiar means characteristic of only one group of people it actually comes from the Latin word to describe cattle so whose cattle is that the Latin word would be Peculiare, where we get peculiar. So it's, man, these Christians have curious spots. They don't look like all the other cattle. They're so peculiar. We're going to hear a story today about some really peculiar actions of Paul and Silas on their missionary journey. And we're going to ask the question, what makes people live in such a peculiar way? And what happens when they do people experience God if you've got a Bible grab it we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 we're walking through the book of Acts the book of Acts is the uh, the, accounts the 30 years after Jesus life death and resurrection if you don't have a Bible there's some on the ends of the row so you can grab those or ask somebody to pass it down Um, Acts is right after the four gospels Matthew Mark and Luke Luke and John which account Jesus life and then Acts comes right after it no shame in using the table of contents if you need to do that to find the book of Acts But as uh, you're turning there, let me give you some, let me give you some background to where we're at in the 30 years following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, He dies. He rises from the grave. His disciples see him along with 500 other individuals. And then Jesus uh, ascends into heaven and he says, wait, I'm sending my spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God indwells the disciples and they're sent out into the world to be God's witnesses. They've witnessed the power of Jesus, the life, teaching, death. And they've witnessed, most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. And so now they become witnesses. And so the church starts in Jerusalem, which is, is the center of uh, the nation of Israel. All the original disciples were Jewish. And then the church begins to grow in Jerusalem. And then they start to send people out to non-Jewish countries to the Gentiles and so we've been looking now at the second half of the book of Acts at that part of the mission the mission to non-Jewish peoples and cultures the Gentiles and and we saw several weeks ago the end of the first missionary journey of Paul so I want to recount that for you so that you can see because I want to give you context because this happened in real world okay this isn't just stories these things happen so go ahead and put up that first missionary uh, journey and so you see on the far right in, in Syria, uh, Antioch. Antioch became the primary sending church for these missionary journeys of a guy named Paul. And he went on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and we'll see he'll go on a second missionary journey with Silas. And you see they came to the island of Cyprus and then back to the mainland, which is modern-day Turkey. And they visited several and started churches uh, in Iconium and Derbe and Lystra. And then they came back to Antioch, okay? Now, Ryan talked about last week, how after this first missionary journey and these non-Jewish peoples were coming into the church, the question became, do these new converts to Christianity need to become Jewish? Because Christianity was always within Judaism. It wasn't something separate. And so they had a council and all the leaders uh, of the church came together and they made a decision that clearly God was giving his spirit to non-Jewish peoples before they took up all the Jewish rites, like circumcision. And so they came to the conclusion by the Spirit of God that clearly God was inviting non-Jewish people into his family, into the family of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, and they did not have to follow Jewish law in order to be a Christian. So that happened in Jerusalem. So you can see where Jerusalem is here. If you, if you see where Antioch is, they travel all the way down to Jerusalem, which is at the very bottom of your screen there. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and Silas, and then they'll travel back up to their sending church, which is Antioch, okay? Now, one of the things that we saw happen again and again, I just want to bring everybody up to speed, because we're going to see Paul now take off on his second missionary journey. And the patterns that we saw on the first missionary journey will be the patterns of the second missionary journey. Always what we see Paul doing when he goes into a new city to take the gospel with him, he always starts This is pattern number one. He always starts with the Jewish community and then moves his way out to the non-Jewish community. And so for today, that is how we should do things as well. We start when we go into a new place where the word of God is already expected to be preached and we come and we provide clarity and we fill out and correct, if needed, the teaching of the word of God. And then from there, we move out successively to other unreached people. The second pattern that we see is Paul, when he comes into a city, he always preaches his sermons in a way that there's common understanding or common ground to begin with. So when he goes and he talks to the Jewish people, he always starts with the Old Testament, uh, particularly with the prophets and the promises of God in the Old Testament because the Jews were familiar, that's common ground, and then he builds about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. When he would go, we saw this a couple weeks ago, to non-Jewish contexts, where people did not know the Old Testament he would start with general general revelation nature and he says you see God's character everywhere and he establishes common ground and then he explains who this God is that he has also come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ so that's pattern number two pattern number three Paul always starts in urban centers centers of commerce because when you start an urban center then when people scatter from that place they'll take the gospel with them wherever they go it's one of the main reasons why we planted a church in Seattle people are coming from all over the world to be in this place hopefully they get an encounter with Jesus they have a chance to come t- into our community or communities like ours consider the gospel of Jesus Christ come to know that it's true and then many will go to other places the fourth pattern is that Paul always returns to areas that he's evangelized. So he'll go to a city, he'll start a church, and then he'll always follow up with them. We should do this in our own life. If we take the gospel to a friend or to a new place, we should always follow up with them and see how the workings of God are going. And then the fifth pattern we always see is that Paul does all of this in the face of opposition and pushback, in the face of hardship. He doesn't, he doesn't run from challenge. He sticks right in. I share those things with you because those patterns, I think, uh, for those of you who are on mission with us at Sedaris, you probably feel a lot of those same patterns. And we look to the word of God to give us encouragement and strength as we go through this mission, this journey. So that brings us now to our second missionary journey. Now, Paul is going to leave Antioch again after the Jerusalem Council. Now he's going to say, okay, it's clear and they've, they've written a clarifying letter of what is expected of the Jewish, or of non-Jewish people to come into uh, the church of Jesus Christ, and he's going to now take that to the Gentile world, okay? So let's throw that uh, next map up here. Here's an overview of where we're going to see Paul go, okay? He's going to start at Antioch, and this time he's not going to take a ship right away. He's going to travel by land up to churches that he already started in Derby and Lystra and Iconium, and then from there he's going to travel through Uh, what back then was called asia now that's turkey he's going to cross the sea and he's going to come to greece okay but we're going to go through a lot of that so but i want you to see that this is happening in real time and it doesn't go as fast as it's going to go this morning uh these are hardships along the way but he's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth okay so pick it up with me in chapter 16 you ready Uh, The first really interesting thing that happens is right before his missionary journey, he did his first missionary journey with Barnabas, but him and Barnabas get into a fight, and it's a fight about John Mark, and if you were with us six months ago or a year ago, we went through the Gospel of Mark. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. Pretty cool dude, (laughs) wrote one of the Gospels, but Paul's angry at him because John Mark left First missionary journey, and Barnabas now wants to bring John Mark on the second. And Paul says, No way! And it says uh, that they split up. And the Greek word that's used for split up literally means there was a convulsive outburst. So here's why I want to bring this up the mission of God is never so seamless and perfect, and, and people lose their temper because it's important. And I don't think Paul was right here, and it's a good thing we don't worship Paul. That's important. We talk a lot about Paul in the book of Acts, especially the second half, and we talk about Peter in the first half of the book of Acts, but Paul is not to be worshipped. He's not perfect. He has a convulsive outburst, and he breaks up with Barnabas, and they go their own ways, and so Paul picks up some new running mates, and he picks up a guy named Silas, and so Paul and Silas and Luke head out from Antioch. Luke's the one who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. They head out from Antioch, into this region called Galatia, the green, you see the green, into Galatia uh, to revisit the the churches that they've helped to plant, okay? Now, uh, when we get here to chapter 16 then, it says, when Paul came also, verse 1, to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but the father was a Greek. Now, Timothy, that should pop up in chat. You probably know lots of people named Timothy. That's usually because they're important biblical characters. Okay, so Timothy is a young man who Paul meets on his second missionary journey in Lystra, one of the, the places that Paul started a church on his first missionary journey. And Timothy joins the team and he'll travel with Paul on many occasions. He'll learn from Paul and build up Paul. And then if you're a student of the New Testament, you know that Paul writes two letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy. He writes both of those letters, Paul Paul writes to Timothy when Timothy's going to lead the church in Ephesus, which we'll come to um, in a couple weeks. So this is important. So these are key characters. I want you to know about how this all happened. It's it's all organic in the sense of these are real people meeting each other on the mission of God. There's no sort of pre-planning, it's just happening, and it's even happening in the midst of sort of these relational scuffles that are going on and God uses all of that turmoil to bring Timothy who is one of the great great men of biblical history that takes the gospel forward okay so he meets uh, Timothy and he does an interesting thing because Timothy's mother was Jewish but his father was Greek Paul says hey let's go get circumcised yikes as a grown man okay (laughs) He hadn't been circumcised yet, because his father was a Greek, but actually Jewish law said that if your mother's Jewish, you should be circumcised. Now, if you were with us last week, the entire Jerusalem Council is all about, do non-Jews need to be circumcised? And immediately following, Paul says, go get circumcised. What is going on here? Is he just going against what he fought for at the Jerusalem Council? The answer is no. No. He's just, the Jerusalem council says, what is required, and then Paul says, what is wise? And because people would have known of Timothy in the area, and they would have known that his mother was Jewish, he said, it's wise for us to be hospitable to the Jews that we encounter, so why don't you just get circumcised? Not because you have to, but because it's hospitable to make people who do not yet know of Jesus Christ comfortable when you're telling them of him, Okay, this, does this make sense? So it's not prescribed for everyone to do what Timothy did, but Paul says in this circumstance it makes sense. Now, This is such an important principle. There are all sorts of things that Christians are free to do, but if you care about the mission of God, you might withhold from doing those things out of love and hospitality for another. Okay, so for instance, for Christians, There is nothing wrong with drinking in moderation. Being drunk is against God's law, but having a drink, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not forbidden. However, you may decide out of hospitality and love for somebody who might struggle with alcohol to not bring it into the equation, that it might not become a distraction. You see how this this principle comes all the time. It's not forbidden, but it might be loving and hospitable to not do certain things or to do other things, to wear certain dress, even though you don't have to, in order that people might not unnecessarily be distracted or uncomfortable, that they might be able to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ that you're presenting to them. So we're going here, we've got Paul now, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, and they move on, and they're, and they're planning to take the gospel into Asia. It's that area of eastern Turkey as we know it today. And they're going into this area, and they're, they're wanting to take the gospel there. So pick it up with me in verse 6. It says this, And they went through the region of Persia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia... They attempted to go to Bintia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now what's going on here? So you want to take the gospel somewhere, and the Spirit of God, in two occasions, says no. The Spirit will not allow them to go. They are forbidden to go. That's a closed door. But they're very sensitive to the Spirit of God, so they say, okay, we don't understand. And then what happens is Paul has a vision Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so you have closed door, closed door, a vision, open door. You have both negative and positive divine guidance. This is how God works. This is how he moves us in and out of places that we're supposed to be, and we have to be at all times sensitive both to doors that he's closing and doors that he's opening. But notice what Paul does. He's always moving. God doesn't open and close doors just by you sitting and waiting. Paul is always moving. He's always probing into the will of God, and God is giving him the guidance that he needs. One of the principles we talk about here at Sedaris is Aggressive availability. So it doesn't mean that you force yourself upon everyone or force great conversations with everyone, but you are aggressive to make yourself available. You put yourself out there that if people do want to talk to you and have real, meaningful conversation, they have the opportunity to do that. It's very hard for that to happen if you isolate yourself, only hang out with Christian friends but we're aggressively available, we're probing, we're asking God to open and close doors. And when we do that, we find him giving us what we need to know where to go and who to talk to and, and how deep to go in the conversation. Now eventually they will go back to Asia where God forbidden them to go. We'll see that as we go on in the book of Acts, but for now God says, nope, not in my timing. My timing means not now. So they go on, And and so we see even in the story that God can guide us in a number of ways. Open and closed doors, dramatic guidance, visions. Not all of us will have visions. Some of us will. And sometimes it's just using sanctified common sense. All of these things are at play when we're trying to find out where God is, is calling us to and sending us next, okay? And so eventually they bypass Asia and they end up in Macedonia in a town called Philippi. It's across the channel here. At the very top left, you can, you can barely even see it on here because it's cut off a little bit, uh, but it's at the very top left there, a town called Philippi. Now, what's interesting about this town is actually it's kind of like a retirement town for Roman military officials. It's kind of like South Florida of <laughs> the ancient world, okay? So Roman military officials would go down there. So you just put your, I want you to put yourself in these stories. When you read through and you study narrative, you've got to put yourself in, to, in the stories, okay? And so Paul and Barnabas go into the city, and the only people that they can find, because remember, they always go to Jew, Jews first, are, are God-fearers. They're studying the Old Testament. The only people that they find doing that is this group of women. And so they engage them. They're aggressively available to talk about Jesus, and they begin a conversation with them, and the women invite them to tell them about this Jesus, this gospel, this good news. And they tell them, and a woman named Lydia becomes the first European convert, the first European convert to the Jesus way. Uh, if you read about Lydia, she's an amazing woman. There's no doubt that she was one of the big reasons that the church in Philippi was founded. She was a wealthy woman. It says she was a seller of purple goods. So she's a businesswoman. Doesn't look like she was, had a husband at this point. We know that she was important because Luke in the book of Acts highlights her. And we're talking about her now. What an incredible woman. The first European convert, a businesswoman, probably unmarried. Amazing, amazing story. And we'll see at the end, when Paul and Silas are leaving town, they make sure to stop in and see Lydia and say goodbye to her. Pretty cool stuff. Pick it up with me now in verse 1616, and we're going to get into the main account that we want to look at today, 1616. This is after meeting Lydia, after she was baptized says this, as they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. Now, the Greek word here for divination literally means she had a Pythion spirit. I'm not sure the right way to say it. But this word was used and had become translated to mean a spirit of divination, but it's literally referencing a dragon, a mythical dragon of ancient Greece, okay? And so people who had come to have the gift of fortune-telling, that could see the future, uh, that were possessed is what we, 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 we see here. They would say they have the spirit of this python spirit, this mythical dragon. They were um, insane, but they could predict the future. And so the slave girl had an owner, and she was bringing much wealth to her owner. And she begins to pester Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And eventually what we see in the story is that Paul gets so frustrated by her because she's not actually saying anything untrue. She's just following them around and, and sort of screaming in the background. Eventually Paul says, okay, I've got to get rid of her. She's distracting, and he casts out this spirit that she has. And she goes back to her owners, and her owners find out that she can no l- longer fortune tell Therefore, she can no longer make money for them and they become upset because they're losing income. And they go and they find Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy and they have them flogged, beaten, and put in jail for casting out a demonic spirit from a slave girl. Who's on the right side of history here? Who's on the right side? But it lands... Paul and Silas in jail. They didn't arrest Timothy and Luke because Timothy and Luke were clearly Roman citizens and you could not jail Roman citizens without a trial. Now this will come up in a second because actually Paul himself and Silas were also Roman citizens though they were Jewish and so people didn't assume that they were Roman citizens. So only Paul and Silas get thrown into jail and here's where the really peculiar behavior begins. As if casting out demons was not peculiar enough Now it gets really peculiar in my mind, okay? So pick it up with me in verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And the he that he's referring to is the jailer, the Philippian jailer, okay? Puts them into the inner prison, fastens their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There's three peculiar things that happen. The first is this. They break out into singing and praising God. And everybody's listening to them. This is unreal. What's just happened to them, being thrown in jail for rescuing a woman from the bondage of demon possession, now they're in jail and they're praising God and they're singing spiritual songs, and they're singing hymns. And I couldn't help but when I thought of this, my favorite music genre is the blues, and I couldn't help, you might have heard some blues when you walked in, I couldn't help but think about African American spirituals. Slaves in the South, who were brought here against their will, and they write some of the greatest music that's ever been written all in the face of their bondage. You know what I'm talking about? Swing low, sweet chariots, coming forth to carry you home. That's a classic spiritual. All written in the face of intense persecution and bondage. Some of the greatest worship that we know in our country, probably the greatest, comes out of all of that. You know, it's, I think sometimes I think, when I think about that, and I went back, and it's really cool if you want to do it, you can go on the, li, uh, the Library of Congress and you can listen to some of the oldest recordings of, of these African-American spirituals. They don't go all the way back to when they were originally written. That stuff's lost only, only to the heart and the mind of God. But you can hear, and you just hear the soul coming out of them. And I, I feel like, this is, this is what I feel like, I wish I was in this jail cell hearing the way these two men sang to the Lord in the midst of their bondage. And and I think so often, you know, I, I hope that our church is a church that sings from the depths of our soul when we sing to God, but I fear sometimes that we don't because we don't feel the bondage that we're in. We don't know the depths of our need for God, and so when we sing, we say words, and maybe we have a good voice, maybe we don't, but we don't sing from deep in our soul, and it comes out as almost nothing. But these men in chains for doing the work of God, falsely imprisoned, not sure if they'll ever come out of that jail alive, sing. Songs of thanksgiving to God because they know their need, and this is exactly what happens in the African American spirituals. All of those those songs written in seventeenth or the eighteenth and, and ni- early nineteenth century, those songs are they're so tied to reality. So, like "Sweet uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot" is about the Underground Railroad coming home, coming to take you home, and it's also about that ultimately God is the one that takes us home. And so it's so rooted in the reality of our situation, I feel, feel like most of us probably in this room have it pretty good. We're not really sure if we need God. And so maybe when we sing out, we're missing it. Now, if you know the history of music, you know that all the great genres of of truly American music come out of Negro spirituals. The blues is just the offspring of the spirituals. Jazz is just the offspring of the spirituals. Rock and roll is just the offspring of the spirituals. Hip-hop is just the offspring. All these great genres of music how could something have so much power and impact? Couldn't you imagine the Spirit of God in those places with these people as they're singing out of real need? How do we get there? We've got to get there. We've got to understand our sin, the captivity that we are in, and our need for God. And maybe, too, we can sing like Paul and Silas did, like the great saints of our dark past, sang to the Lord. So that's the first peculiar thing, singing in the face of death. Look at verse 26, peculiar thing number two. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and every bond Every, everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So here's the scene. They're singing. This must have been some good music, man. And all of a sudden, God responds, and a real earthquake shakes the ground so violently that the prison doors, you know, these are old prisons, built like they are now, an earthquake would shake the ground, The doors off its hinges and the stalks that that held them there were broken and people now had the opportunity to flee. And the reason the jailer wants to kill himself is because if he were a jailer, himself probably sort of a slave of the government as a jailer, he would be killed for letting the prisoners go. Instead of escaping, look at what Paul and Silas do. The natural thing would be to flee, which is why the jailer was ready to just kill himself on the spot because he didn't want to be tortured and executed for failing to do his job. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, speaking to the jailer, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Do you see how peculiar this is? A man's willing to kill himself because he's just sure that the normal thing to do would be for everybody to flee. But Paul and Silas not only stay themselves, they somehow convince all the other prisoners to stay put. And as we'll see, it ends up not only saving this man's physical life, but it saves his eternal life as he comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sometimes doing nothing is the most profound thing that you can do. So I told you I was going to tell you a second story from my time at Fremont Brewing. And this is a story about doing nothing. Really, the first story is about doing nothing, too. I was just sitting there. But I sit there some more. My friend comes, sits with me. And then about five minutes into our conversation, another guy comes and he sits down right next to my friend across the table from me. And uh, really recognizable guy, long, blonde hair. I'd seen him probably 50 times studying at the SPU library. And I study there often, do my sermon prep. And he sits right in the front, and I walk in, I see him. And he sits down, literally, right in front of me. And I've never engaged with him at the library, and I'm just sitting there, and he sits down next to me. And so I ask him, or I introduce myself. And I think I startled him. I reached my hand across, and I said... Hi, my name's Dave. I've seen you at the library before. He goes on to tell me, I said, Why do you study at the SP Library? He says, Because I got kicked out of Seattle U and I got kicked out of the UW Libraries. He struggles, clearly, um, a brilliant guy, but, but clearly he struggles with some mental illness. And he goes on for literally a half an hour, and he doesn't know I'm a pastor <laughs> anything, about textual criticism which is he's been studying the ancient sources that give us the Bible and he knows every single codex and ancient document and how they're incomplete and how we need more and he goes on for half an hour and I literally do nothing. I just listen to him. There's really nothing I can do. I ask him a couple of questions. You know, well, what can we do to fix it? And he goes on for another 15 minutes and my ministry to him that day was doing nothing, but staying engaged and looking him in the eye and listening to him. And I guarantee you that few people have ever done that for him. Because the stuff he was talking about would make no sense to the average person. It barely made sense to me, but because I've studied this stuff in seminary, I at least could track. And I just did nothing. I just let him talk. Sometimes doing nothing is the best thing that we can do. And Paul and and Silas do nothing, and it ends up saving a man's life. So look at what happens next. Verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he, ba- and he, that's the jailer, was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Sometimes doing nothing leads to everything. This peculiar act of just staying in their cells led this man to the Lord. Unbelievable. Act of courage and peculiarity. Look at verse 35 now for the third peculiar thing that happens. And this one might need a little bit of explaining. So I'll read the full text and I'll I'll tell you what's going on. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. That's Paul and Silas. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrate have, have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them they have they have beaten us publicly uncondemned meaning they did not have a trial men who are roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly no let us come let them come themselves and take us out the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were roman citizens so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So then they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen all the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them and departed. So here's the third peculiar thing that they do. They get freed, and Paul says, No, keep me in prison, because I want them to come down here themselves and let me go. Now, what you have to understand is, this is incredibly risky, because what if the magistrates, they've already done it once, jailed them without due cause? They could end up doing it again. They might even kill them. That's what they did to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus didn't get a fair trial. Jesus was executed for false charges. But Paul, knowing that he has a rights as a Roman citizen, does a very bold and risky thing and acts very peculiar and says, no, I think I'll stay here until they come and let me out themselves. Now, we know this was a particularly bold move because Luke writes it in here. We wouldn't have it if, if it wasn't in here. And it just goes to show that for the Apostle Paul, he's living by a different set of motivations. He's not thinking about the world in the same way that most people did. He's willing to take risks, be imprisoned, step up as close as possible to the line of death as he can in order that he has a chance to represent Christ. So what made him so peculiar? What made him so bold? Him and Silas. You know, Silas doesn't get a lot of credit, but he was right there with Paul. I truly believe that Paul believed that he was living on borrowed time. Is that, you, know, you know that phrase means? Living on borrowed time? When he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, if he knows Paul's story, and he came to understand that it's not by following the Jewish law, but it's by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, that we're saved, And when he came to realize that life was not a competition of religious performance to see who gets into heaven, but instead when he came to realize that we all deserve death for our rebellion against God, and that he, Paul, who himself was persecuting and executing Christians before he encountered the risen Jesus, when he realized he, above all, was deserving of death, as one who was going against God. When he realized all of this, he realized every breath he took was a gift. For some purpose, he was living on borrowed time. Paul said things like this I'm the chief of sinners because of what he had done to persecute the church. Translation He was the most deserving of death. He'd say things like this To live as Christ, to die as gain. Translation, I'm not afraid of death because it means that I've accomplished all that God has planned for me in this life and I get to go be with him face to face. So when, like Paul, we believe in reality in this way that Christians have been saved by grace through faith and there's nothing that we do in this life that saves us but that once we realize that, we do whatever God asks us to do We too can realize that we are living on borrowed time. And it leads to peculiar actions. It leads to things like giving away 10% of your income to the mission of God, to the hurting, to the sick, to the poor. It includes peculiar things like moving into remote areas of the world, dangerous areas, risking your life. It means even passing up marriage to focus on serving God. It means adopting children even when you can have children biologically. It means starting hospitals, even before hospitals were lucrative. I mean, Christians, if you study the history of the church, have been doing peculiar things because they believe they're living on borrowed time. And when we choose risky rather than safe, safety, for the sake of others, people always notice. The, the jailer noticed, well, he's acting so peculiar. And he asked them, Why? What do I have to do to experience salvation, meaning not fearing death or judgment or the shame of not doing my job? What do I have to do to be saved like clearly you're saved? That's what people will do when we choose risky for the sake of others. Because it means that we believe that this life now is a gift from God and it's not just a gift for us to enjoy it's a gift to accomplish something for him that's the only reason that makes sense of why God, even after you trust in him and proclaim your faith to Jesus, doesn't just take us from this earth because he's giving us time to accomplish something and I said it and I'll say it again, it's not just for you to enjoy this life though you should because you get to live in God's good creation you get to be on mission for him but that's only a byproduct of the real purpose and you got to figure out what that is Paul was constantly trying to figure out why do you have me here why do you have me in this jail and by the power of the spirit he determined to stay and he realized it was because the jailer was somebody that God was after Have you ever met somebody that lives like they're on borrowed time? They're really peculiar, and they're really wonderful. It's like a breath of fresh air. Most of us don't live life that way. Most of us live life like this is all we get. And so we got to maximize it. and We got to get as much for ourselves as we can. We hold on to it with clenched fists. And we justify our risk aversion because we think God would want me to have a good life. Paul, Paul didn't see the world that way. He was constantly asking, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to risk? What do you want me to die to? What do you want me to, to give up in order that, my, that, that the purpose of my life might be fulfilled? At, at Sedaris, the way we talk about this is The word consider, we say consider a lot. It's it's a vision God gave me when my sister passed away. But the word consider literally means with heavenly body. That's all we're saying. Paul lived his life now through the lenses of his eternal dwelling with God. With his heavenly self in mind. He filtered everything through that. And it led him to this peculiar life and many came to know Jesus because of it. My prayer is that what's said of me is that I lived a peculiar life. I pray that that it's never said of me that I lived for this life first. My prayer is that it's never said of you. My fear is that it will be. That many of us never take a risk for the mission of God. And we'll get to the end of our life and not have lived peculiarly. It's a weird word to say, (laughs) peculiarly. This takes some soul searching, this takes an, an honest examination, an honest consideration of our own lives. Are we living like we're on borrowed time? Because we are. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised five minutes from now. Everything is a gift from God granted to you so that you might live in a peculiar way for the cause of Christ so that people might see you and say they live differently than me and ask how might I get what you have? And then we get to tell them about Jesus about what he's done for us, about who he is, and what he will do, and how actually, when we live this way, it's freeing, it's full of joy, it's full of excitement. And you know what? It's full of friends (laughs) that are crazy like you, like Silas is for Paul, and Timothy, and Luke. And you'll form the greatest friendships of your life as you're living in this way in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be peculiar people. We want to be people who take risks for your kingdom, take risks for your mission in the world, and we want to experience the joy of that. The joy that comes from confidence in the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I think to get there, God, we need to believe a little more. God, we believe, help our unbelief. We believe that he died and rose again and that we too will rise again with him. But we need to believe more, God. Help us to be like Paul and Silas and not hedge our bets, but to fully live into our future promises that you've fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Help us to know that we have a life to come that will so far exceed this life that when we get there, we'll look back and wonder why we ever held on so tightly to these things. We pray this, myself included, and ask for the Spirit of God to give us this boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.